our Bibles together this morning and open up to the book of Job chapter 14. We are continuing our way together through this book of the Bible. Job chapter 14. We'll set the stage a little bit as you find your way there. I think that in some ways Job has reached a turning point in his thought process. Job chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, when his life falls apart, we see his initial response is worship. He tells us at one point that he was really looking forward to sitting and receiving comfort from his friends. They said that when they saw him at a distance from afar off, that uh, they didn't even recognize him. He says that when he saw them coming, he thought, oh, good. They're just going to come alongside of me and they're going to bring me comfort and they're, they're going to help me in so many ways. But now by the time we get to Job chapter 14, all of Job's friends have spoken to him at least once and attempted to bring him words of comfort that have been anything but comfort. And I think we'll see this morning, beginning in Job chapter 14, for at least this chapter, Job is beginning to realize that the way that he views the things of God and the way that his friends view the things of God are very different from each other. That Job has this underlying belief, this underlying hope in the things of God and his friends don't seem to. Now, now please don't misunderstand me. There are times when Job's friends invoke the name of God. That doesn't make them believers, does it? You and I have friends who might even invoke the name of God, or we could even go so far as to invoke the name of Jesus Christ, but they don't mean by their use of it what we mean by our use of it, do they? And that's kind of where Job is at. And that changes his thought process in this way. He realizes now that when he talks about his view of God, he also has to include in that now uh, man's view of God. And when Job talks about man's view of God or man's view of life, he doesn't mean men like him. He means men like his friends. And so together, as we take a look at Job chapter 14 today, we tucked one of these uh, right in your ministry guide this morning. Really small, but hopefully everyone has one. These we don't normally do this, okay? So this isn't a regular thing. Don't expect it every week because I did it. I ran too close together and tried running like nine to a page, and I'm up there with a paper cutter, and it was just too much work. So we're not doing this on a regular basis. But what this has for you this morning is uh, the scriptures that I'm at least going to reference. I may miss some of them. You don't have to let me know that on the way out, okay? Um, but they're in there for you to uh, look up and, and check out on your way out. And we're going to pull all of these from Job chapter 14. You know what just popped into my mind, too, and this has nothing to do with the sermon. Also on your way out today, there's a card in the Welcome Center. It's just a general card, uh, a couple cards, I think, of encouragement that are being sent out to Abby Fisher, our daughter who's serving out in Chicago with a mission organization this summer. We're going to drop those in the mail so she gets them before she heads home uh, in a couple of weeks. So if you want to take a moment to, to sign them and just say, hey, Abby, praying for you, or have you brushed your teeth this week, or, you know, just whatever. Not that she has a toothbrushing problem, but you follow. So, all right, Job chapter 14, we're going to pick up with verse 1. We've kind of set the stage for it. Let's have a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we do it with eager expectation that your word is what it says it is. It is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. If necessary, it is a hammer. If necessary, it will burn like fire in our bones. And it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, you know how you need to use your word this morning in our lives. And so we invite you to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Job chapter 14, verse 1, you see it in the very first word. Job is talking about man, general man, not necessarily godly man. And he says this, man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. You can see there that in the most part, it's not, for the most part, it's Job, uh, as we read those first seven verses together, that Job's view of man in general, man without God, isn't exactly painting a rosy picture. He begins by telling us there in verse 1 simply that man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. That the beginning of life may be beautiful. He comes forth like a flower, but he fades away quickly. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And really, every one of us has either experienced, uh, well, how many of you have experienced birth? If you were born, you've experienced birth. Yeah, I'm not really sure, actually. Yeah, so we've all been born, but we don't have any memory of that. But some of us have had the joy of experiencing our children be born, or perhaps grandchildren, or, or seeing it, or just being... And, and we know that when those babies are born, you know, it's all... You get all the ooing and the eyeing and the, and the cuddling and the holding and, and all of those things, because life, every person, man or woman, begins that way. They're born like a flower. Nobody's handed their kid and they go, oh, you know... What's that? What's, what happened? You know, they're, they're like a flower. Now, hopefully, I was reading this weekend, there's a, a Christian school out in Indiana called Taylor University, and they have a flower in their, in their uh, solarium or greenhouse thing there. It's called the corpse flower. And it only blooms once every five to seven years, and it just bloomed late last week, so they took all kinds of pictures. And the reason that it's called the corpse flower is that when it blooms once every five to seven years, it smells like a rotting corpse. Yeah. Now, hopefully that wasn't the flower that people were thinking of when we were born, right? Like, oh, beautiful, like a corpse flower. kind of smells kind of... I mean, there are smells that babies have, but you understand where we're going with this. And so um, I hope you do, because I don't. Um, and, and that's how Job is talking. That's how Job is looking at man. Life is fleeting, few days, much trouble. And then that question there in the beginning, or excuse me, in the middle in verse 4, he, he asks and deals with some big questions in this chapter. In verse 4 it says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Now Job's response to that is two words at the end of the 
end of verse 4. It's no one. But keep in mind that Job is not speaking from his perspective, as we're going to see in a little while. He's speaking from the perspective of man. So from man's life, apart from God, who can make something clean that is unclean? And that's one of the big questions that is in this chapter. Uh, big questions like, um, who can make the sunshine on a cloudy day? Who? The Candyman can. That's right. That's right. Some of you were like God. I think no. That was from a that was from a song. But this is a, this is a big question that that people struggle with. And, and there's a couple of answers that we can come up with for them. Who who can who can make something clean from something unclean? From man's perspective, without God, the answer is no one. But for the person who has God in their life, for the person who has put their faith and trust in God the way that Job has, the answer to the question, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, is the same answer that we would give, and that answer is God. Now, if you were to ask people that today, though, who don't know God, they may give you a couple of different answers. And, and even in this room, we may have a couple of different answers. And one of those answers may be, well, you know what? I don't need God to do that for me. I don't need God to clean what is unclean because I can do that myself. So I want, you to, uh, I want you to turn with me this morning. See, we're already going out of order from what's there, but that's okay. To Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 22. 2.22. My parents' address, actually, when they lived in... Westwood, 222 Washington Street. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22. Here's what it says. I have a sheet of paper back there that's folded in half. If I could have that, that'd be great. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22. It says this, For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, Thank you. yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. If you want to take your ability to get, get clean from unclean into your own hands, you can try to do it. Or you can hearken to the words of God himself, who basically says here, it's not going to work. It doesn't matter if you wash yourself with lye. It doesn't matter if you use much soap. Your iniquity is still marked. It's still seen before me, says the Lord God. Your uncleanness is still noticeable. Now, I, once, once a, a week, usually, as I'm preparing for a sermon, I come across something like, ah, I wonder what that is, or why it says that, or not in a theological way, but just in a, in a kind of everyday kind of way. And I was wondering about washing with lye. And so I just Googled washing with lye. For some reason, it kept trying to bring me to, like, mascara websites and things like that. I don't know exactly what that means, but um, I didn't go there for any longer than I needed to. Um, so I'm not really interested in eye makeup and, you know, rouge and, you know, whatever. Okay, But it was funny because it said this. Yes, lye is a corrosive substance. Sodium hydroxide is a substance that, quote, may generate sufficient heat to ignite combustible material when in contact with water. And this is what really got me. Symptoms... Of, of exposure include burns, hair loss, and pneumonitis. I don't even know what that is, according to the Centers 
for disease control. It's been used for a long time, for centuries, to make soap work. And then I was reading that it used to be a very common product in something called hair relaxers. And then I realized that is my problem. <laughs> At some point, my parents must have washed my hair as a kid with hair relaxers, and my hair just got too chilled out. And just, whoop, it was gone. But whether you use sodium hydroxide or some other substance, or just a bunch of different soaps, God can still see your uncleanness. It's still marked before him. So this thing of, well, I don't really need God to make me clean from unclean. I'll do it myself. It doesn't work. But here's the second attitude that some people have. It's this. I understand that God can make me clean from being unclean, but I'm not unclean. That, that, that's not an issue for me. And for that one, we go all the way in the New Testament to 1 John. Really, it's near the back of your Bible, so sometimes the quickest way to find it is to turn to Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. And then just take a left, grab a hunk of pages, and turn, and you'll find Jude, 3 John, 2 John, and then, of course, 1 John right before that. And 1 John 1, 9 is a verse that we often quote. We'll get, I guess we'll start with that one. You've heard me quote it even if I haven't had you turn there before. It's a familiar one, one that if you grew up in a church where you memorized scripture, this would be one that you memorized. Because 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But 1 John 1, 9, and let me know if this surprises you, comes after 1 John 1, 8. Nobody's surprised by that, right? All right. 1 John 1, 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, attitude one is, I'll do the cleaning myself. It doesn't work. God says you can scrub all you want. I can still see your uncleanness, your iniquity, your sin. Attitude number two is, well, I'm not a bad person. I don't even have uncleanness in my life. I don't have any of this iniquity or this sin that you're talking about. First John 1 John 1.8 says that kind of attitude is simply you're deceiving yourself. And you're not telling the truth. But if you confess your sin... Your uncleanness, your iniquity. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, our uncleanness, our iniquity, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, well what exactly does he cleanse? Well, see, God can reach parts that you and I can't reach. And I don't mean that spot in the small of your back or in the middle of your back, right? That you need one of those back scratcher things or the thing on the, is it a called falafa? Falufa? No, falafa is like Mediterranean food or something. What is it? Lufa. What's falafa? Is food Mediterranean food? See where my mind is? Yeah. So, so there's areas that we can't reach, guys. 
That's why we have to leave the cleaning up to God to bring us from unclean to clean. Specifically, if you keep a, a, a you can keep a hand there or something in, in uh, 1 John um, and flip back just a few pages to the book of Hebrews. It's not very far. In Hebrews, um, no, not Hebrews, in Romans, sorry. Romans chapter 10. It's still not all that far, but it's further. In Romans chapter 10, No, it was Hebrews. My apologies. <laughs> Sorry. In Hebrews, just a little bit before 1 John, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, here's what it says, Hebrews 10, 22. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, there's an internal cleansing that the Lord needs to do in our minds. We can't reach on the inside. That's why no amount of lye, no amount of soap, no, no amount of laundry detergent can wash away what's going on in our hearts, the uncleanness that's in our hearts. And so here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, it tells us that our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. One chapter before in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, I love what it says here. It says, how much more, Hebrews 9, 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Not, that's not so much our inner heart as it is our inner head. You know, one of the things that we very often struggle with, even when, even after we have said, God, I am unclean, I cannot clean myself, please clean me, please wash me, please sprinkle my heart, please wash my conscience, that's the one area that we still struggle with sometimes, isn't it? In that area where we know that we've confessed a sin, and yet our conscience is still bothering us about it. Our, it, it's like our conscience is, is uh, reminding us about it. And, and we begin to feel condemned over something that we know we've already asked for forgiveness for. And the Bible says that there's two sources of that condemnation. One of them, not surprisingly, is Satan himself. Satan loves to condemn Christians. But the second one, the Bible says, is our very own heart. Our own hearts condemn us. And so you can have sometimes people who are saved, people who've been cleansed, they've been brought from unclean to clean. Their answer to that question, way back in Job chapter 14, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? They excitedly say, God can, and I know it because he has done that for me. And yet there's some days when they are still so weighed down and burdened by the very thing yesterday that they were excited that they had been given uh, forgiveness for, that they received forgiveness for. And so how great it is that when God washes us, it's not just an external thing, and it's not just even the cleansing of our hearts, but he also has the ability to cleanse our conscience. Keeping a finger in Hebrews 
Would you turn back with me, please, to Job chapter 14? As Job gives us in these, this next set of verses, another comparison of what it's like for man without God. Job chapter 14, verse 7. It says, for there is hope for a tree, if it's cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud, and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies, and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Again, there's hopelessness in there. In fact, there's so much hopelessness in those verses that as Job says from man's perspective without God, as they look for hope, one of the places that they wind up having to look because they're so desperate for it is a tree that's been cut down where the stump has been allowed to begin drying up and the roots are dying and all of those things. And he says that, that stump that's dying has more hope than a man without God. Because that stump that even though it's dying, it gets a little bit of water on it and maybe a little bit of sunlight and all of a sudden it's growing something again this little shoot of something that's coming back up. And he says, man doesn't even have that. Man, apart from God, simply lies down, verse 12, and does not rise till the heavens are no more. Verse 10, he asks the question, but man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? See, in the first set of verses, Job is looking at his friends and thinking, he, here are my three friends. Men, friends of mine, but they don't know God. And they are struggling with how they, and Job too, because they don't believe Job knows God either. They believe he's just like them. They're struggling with how to make something clean out of something unclean. But even more than that, what these next verses deal with is how to get life out of death. That's what you're doing when the stump is dead, but it gets a little water and then there's a shoot that comes out. How is it then that, that life can be brought forth from death? How can something old and dead be replaced with something new and alive? Now again, Job has a different answer to this as we're going to see. He's not speaking for himself and I want you to understand that. He's beginning to be able to separate his friend's approach and their use of God's name with his own approach and his own use of God's name, his own stronger belief in God. But he's trying to answer this question and trying to introduce us with some of the big questions that people sometimes wrestle with even to this day. Indeed, he breathes his last. And then where is he? The hopeless person is just buried in the ground. However... If you turn with me again in the New Testament, this time to just one verse, again a popular verse, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have a finger still in Hebrews, you can keep working your way forward towards Job. Don't go too far. 
You're going to start finding some letters and find 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Another popular verse, another verse if you grew up in a church that emphasized the memorization of Scripture was one you probably memorized. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And isn't that just another word for dying? Old things have died, have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Hey, how can somebody who's unclean become clean? It's not them doing it. It's not them denying that it even needs to be done. It's coming to God. He can cleanse our hearts. He can cleanse our conscience. How is it, or to expand it a little bit more, as Job does, how is it that a person can, can find new life where there is only death? Where is their hope? Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Our hope for things that have died and have passed away is found only in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So far, the answer to every question asked is God. Or you could even say, so far, the answer to every question asked is either who Jesus is or something that Jesus has done. And that's probably not surprising to us this morning. He is the answer to all of life's big questions that people wrestle with. Now, again, you can keep a hand there in 2 Corinthians, but flip back to Job with me, this time just for a moment, just for one verse, because this here in verse 13 lets us know that Job's perspective is different. It would be easy to look at the first 12 verses and say, no, no, this is Job without hope. This is Job wondering how he can be made clean. This is Job wondering how he can have life uh, in, in spite of the death that he's feeling. No, 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 it's not him. He already has that. Yes, he needs to tap into the reminder of that, but this is a man of faith. This is a man who has been walking with God, who's been worshiping God, who's been working for God. All signs of a healthy Christian, we would say today. And in fact, we can see the difference here in verse 13. Look what he says about himself now. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Do you see the contrast? He's saying in the previous verses, the man who doesn't believe in God, when he dies, where is he? Verse 12, he told us, man lies down and does not rise. But Job, in verse 13, clearly believes something different for himself. In Job chapter 13, again, I'll read it, uh, 14.13, sorry, 14.13, he says, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would point me a set time and remember me. He's saying, God, when, when I die, I understand that I'm going to go to the grave, but he's specifically asking that his time in the grave is only for a set time. Do you see that there? He even uses that phrase in the second part of the verse. But in the ver first part or in the middle part of 13, he says that you would conceal me until your wrath is past. 
Job has a different view of what it means when, when a person who has God in their life, who believes in the Lord, dies. Now, he talks much more about life after death and the resurrection in Job chapter 19, and we'll see that together next week. But for this week, I want us more to focus on this idea. Is it possible to avoid the wrath of God? Is it possible to avoid the wrath of God? Because there are people who look at Job's life and go, man, God must be angry with him. That's the stance of his three friends. They believe that Job has done something wrong and that God is angry with him and that's why everything that has happened to him has happened to him. But we know Job chapter 1 and we know the beginning of Job chapter 2 and there is nothing in those chapters that even hints that what Job is experiencing is because God is angry with him. It is not because God is pouring out his wrath on Job. Well, why not? Because God doesn't do that to the people who have put their faith and trust in him. Christians are not in line for the wrath of God. They are not recipients of the wrath of God. And I want you to understand that this morning because sometimes we look at things that happen and we say, you know what, that must happen because God is upset with me. That's not the way that God works, guys, for those who have put their faith and trust in him. You know what? Sometimes even after uh, um, uh, uh, natural um, uh, catastrophes, I can't think of the right phrase, like Hurricane Katrina. I mean, there were people saying after Hurricane Katrina that Hurricane Katrina was God's wrath on New Orleans. That that can't possibly be. Because as, as, as simple a city as New Orleans can be, there's Christians in New Orleans. And Christians are never in line to be recipients of the wrath of God. Now, I don't know why when Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey, people weren't saying, well, that's got to be God's wrath on New Jersey. I mean, if God's going to be upset with any state, don't you think it's New Jersey? You know what I mean? I, just traffic and, you know... Uh, Jersey barriers, I, those were invented there, just cement. It's just like a, sorry, well, but yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and so to help us understand this, let's, uh, let's see, where do you have a finger? In 2 Corinthians? Uh, perhaps after 2 Corinthians a little ways is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We, we, this is such an important point, I think. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 after 2 Corinthians, and there's several small ones, right? And then you get to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. I, I love the simplicity of how the verse begins. What Paul is writing to the church, he's writing to believers, and he says to them in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not appoint the church, did not appoint Christians to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read for you Romans chapter 5, verse 9. It says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
It doesn't say saved through wrath through him. It says, it says saved from wrath through him. Back in 1 Thessalonians, this time in chapter 1, verse 10, it's a really small book, so it's really easy to get there. Paul says at the end of this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Is it clear? I think it's clear. That Christians who have put people who have put their faith and trust in Christ, Job who has put his faith and trust in God, is not having his life fall apart because God's angry with him. And that means that you and I, when we struggle with things in life and things seem to be falling apart, we do not have to ask the question of this is the wrath of God. Well, why is the Bible telling us that we're not in line for the wrath of God? I'll tell you why. Because it makes no sense. Because if you and I are in line as Christians for the wrath of God, then, then what happened on the cross? Because on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ for the sins of the whole world. And, and it's, it's like negative double dipping if God pours out all of his wrath on Christ on the cross. But then for those who put their faith and trust in Christ, he pours out his wrath on them. Well, is there a group of people then that God will pour his wrath on? There is. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, and in Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, it refers to them in both of those places the same way it calls them the sons of disobedience. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like a biker gang. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that when I looked at it this week. Don't, don't, don't start, Norm. Don't start a biker gang called sons of disobedience, okay? Probably not a good idea. Because those two verses, Ephesians 5, 6, Colossians 3, 6, tell us that that is who God's wrath is going to be poured out on in the future. That's who his wrath is going to be poured out on. Now, are there times now when people who are unbelievers sin and God corrects them and redirects them with his chastisement and so on and so forth? Yes. And he does the same for us as believers. That's not the wrath of God. Listen, when the wrath of God comes, everybody knows it. You know how um, you as kids, somebody might say to you, oh, oh, watch out when you get home because dad is angry or mom is upset. And you got home. And you would be able to tell if that was true or not. Because you knew what your dad was like when he was angry. You knew what your mom was like when he was upset. And, and if you got home and they weren't that way, you knew that it wasn't true. Well, listen, when our Heavenly Father pours out his wrath, it is only going to be on the unbelieving world. That's all, for the most part, that's going to be left at that point, except for some people who come to Christ because of everything that the, the world in an uproar and falling apart. Let me just show you. In the last book of the Bible, it's the book of Revelation. It's only one Revelation, by the way. It's not the book of Revelations. It's all one. It's all the revealing of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, Uh, we'll back up to verse 15, get a little bit of a running start. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. 
It says, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Not the kings, not the military commanders, not the politicians, not the military guys, not the people who are, are uh, bosses, nor the people who are employees. Nobody is able to stand on that day. Their only thought process is to hide in the caves and to call out to somebody that those rocks of the caves will fall on them and crush them so they do not need to experience the wrath of the Lamb for His wrath has come. There's no unbelievers there. There's people who will come to Christ during that time, but there's no unbelievers there. They're gone. They've been taken away, caught up, raptured. A couple of chapters ago, book of Revelation, 4 7. So it is not, listen, God is not pouring his wrath out on us when we sin and when we mess up. He will correct us. He will redirect us. Absolutely. We, we might say uh, with kids, uh, he, he'll, he'll spank us. He'll put us in time out. That's more politically correct today, right? He'll put us in time out. But he won't pour out his wrath on us. Because it is not for the people of God, the children of God, Christians, the church, to experience his wrath. And Job knew it. Job says back in Job chapter 13, God, I want you to just hide me in the grave. Don't lay me to rest forever in the grave, Lord. You just hide me in the grave for a set time. I'll, re I'll be ready, Lord, to come back out when your wrath is past. That's when I want you to remember me. Because, as verse 14 says, Job 14, 14, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. Ah, I love how he puts it. He asks the question first, if a man dies, 14, 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? And in some ways he answers it himself. All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. If a man dies, shall he live again? Yes. How? Well, Jesus answers it for us, doesn't he, in John chapter 11. When he goes and, and on his way to the grave of his friend Lazarus, has two separate but similar conversations with Lazarus's two sisters. It's in John chapter 11, verses 25 to 27. Please allow me just to read it to you, but I did give you the reference on your thing there, so you can look it up later. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus gives us a question of his own in four words. Do you believe this? And she responds, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
who is to come into the world. Job's question, if a man dies, shall he live again? Yes. How? Job may be looking forward to his own change, as he says there at the end of that verse, but how does it happen? It happens because of faith in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Absolutely. You've been brought from death to life in a general kind of way, but specifically, as Jesus himself says in John chapter 11, he's the resurrection, he's the life, faith in him, though we may die physically, yet shall we live. And those, that four-word question that Jesus asked to Martha, we have to ask ourselves, do I believe that? Jesus would say to us, do you believe this? It's a yes or no question. Do I believe this? If I do, then death to life is mine to have. My change will come. Thinner, full head of hair, no freckles or whatever, all, all, no, no back pain. No, I don't have a lot of back pain. No heel spurs. Uh, no, you know, getting up in the morning and wondering what that creaking door is, discovering it's not a door, it's part of my body that is now creaking. No more of that. Because of faith in Jesus Christ. Back to Job chapter 14. For the last time. I love these next three verses because it gets to the why. We love to ask why. Early on for Job, that was the question that was on the tip of his lips. Why, 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 why? It's beginning to change now. Uh, Job is slowly shifting from asking God why to asking God, Lord, how am I going to make it through what I have to make it through? Because there comes a point when the, I think I mentioned this on a Wednesday night or maybe even on a Sunday morning, there comes a point where, where the answer to why doesn't matter because it changes nothing. The real question is, how are you going to make it through? How are you going to survive? How are you going to thrive? How are you going to move forward? How are you going to press on? How are you going to do that? And so here, Job, listen, the, the answer to that in a nutshell is God, Christ. But Job here in verses 15, 16, and 17 gives us why God would even look at us and go, you're unclean, but I want to make you clean. You're dead, but I want to bring you life. You're, you're, if you were to die the way you are today, you would be buried in the ground, and that would be it for you for a long time. But I want to do something different in your life. Why? Why would God want that? Job chapter 14, verse 15. Job speaking to God says, God, you shall call. And I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. Why, why does God want to make us clean? Why does he offer us new life? Because he desires the work of his hands. A desire is a want. We could honestly say, why would God do that for us? Because he wants to. Because we are the works of his hands. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 6 says that God created us, that God made us, and that God established us. He created us, he made us, 
He established us. There's a verse in Ephesians that says that you and I are God's workmanship. We are the work of his hands, and he desires to have a relationship with the ones he created, with the ones he made, with the ones he established, and that's who we sit here as this morning, God's. The ones he created, the ones he made, the ones he established. Why does God want to make us clean? Why does he offer us new life? Because he desires a relationship with each of us. And that's why Job says, you know, when my change comes, God, uh, I'm going to call out to you and you're going to answer me because you desire the work of your hands. Then he says in verse 16, for now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. God, you, you are watching me so closely that you know how many steps I've taken. But you're not watching over my sin. Let, let me put it in a different way. God, it's like you've got my Fitbit and you know how many steps I've taken. You're so focused on how many steps I've taken, but you're not focused on the sins that I've committed. Isn't that great? That at the end of the day, if God looks at a spiritual Fitbit and he, he, he doesn't say, okay, Don, well, you took a thousand steps today. That seems low, doesn't it? Is that low? Yes. 10,000, is that better? Yeah? Okay. Healthy. 10,000. Don, you took 100,000 steps today. But, according to your spiritual Fitbit, you committed 5,000 sins. That number is probably a little low, actually. God doesn't do that. He's so aware of the, the steps we are taking, the paths we are walking, but he's not keeping track of ourselves. Why not? Well, he says in verse 17, my transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. See, Jesus, excuse me, God once sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin and then bring our sin to mind again. He wouldn't take us from unclean to clean, from death to life, and then remind us, this is what made you unclean, this is what made you dead. No, no, no. It says there that God covers our iniquity, not covers up. Covering up isn't a good thing. That, that's what politicians have done through the years, cover things up. But he covers them over. And the one before that, I've never seen it anywhere put in Scripture quite like that, where he says, my transgression is sealed up in a bag. Now, let's make a full circle to one of the things we started talking about at the start, and that's this. You and I are made clean only by God. Only when we admit that we need to be made clean and only when we come to God through Jesus Christ. But part of making us clean is sprinkling our hearts, but also washing our conscience. And sometimes, as we said near the start of the sermon, we say it now near the end of the sermon, that, that that's an area where we struggle. We know uh, uh, biblically or theologically or doctrinally that God has forgiven us of our sins, but our condemnation has us confessing the same sins over and over, not because we're committing them over and over, but because our conscience is bothering us. 
And for some of us, when we get that way, if we were to read in that moment that God has our transgression sealed up in a bag, we would read that to mean that he's walking around with a bunch of bags with our sins in it. And they may be sealed now, but I know what's going to happen. At some point, God is going to unseal that bag. At some point, God is going to reveal the sins that I have committed, that Christ has died for. I, I just know it. That's the way that it works in my life. It, these things just happen to come back around again, we might say. And, and I'm struggling with these things. But listen, God isn't walking around with sealed bags of our sins. He seals them in a bag. We can bring in all kinds of other scriptures that talk about God burying our sins at the bottom of the ocean. Or as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. But for some of us, and I think probably even some of us this morning, there is someone walking around with our sealed bed of sin. And it's us. Not him. It's like we're toting that around with us and we're, we're carrying it with us. And it's sealed, yes, but we know the combination. It may be zipped up tight, but we know the trick to undoing that zipper. And we're the ones who haven't dropped the bag. We're the ones who are still lugging it around with us. And we don't just carry one. I don't know about you. I'm one of those guys when I go grocery shopping and they bag up all of the groceries. I don't care how many I have. I'm getting in the house in one shot. Do you understand what I mean? My wife even, uh, Elisa even bought me this special uh, blue handle that you can hold like this and you can line up the bags on it. I need like five of those sometimes. And here I come and, I'm, and of course I always do this to figure out where my house key is to make sure that I'm holding more bags on this side so I can easily get at this and figure out how am I going to get the door open to get the key in and now are these sticks so I have the jingling and all of these things. I, I don't know what the people driving by think when they're watching me go in the house with groceries. But you know what? Some of us are walking through life carrying bags and bags and bags, not of groceries, but of our past sins. Even ones we've confessed, even ones we've turned over to him, even ones that we know God has removed them as far as the east is from the west, but we're keeping them right next to us. Can I just tell you something as we close? It's time to drop the bags. It's time to drop. You don't need to look in there. You know what's in there. And you know those bags are better off sealed. Not better off sealed for a while and then reopened. God's not walking around with those bags. He's let them go. But when he let them go, you and I sometimes pick them back up. And we start walking around with them. And we pick up another one. And another one. And pretty soon, even though we're still moving forward through life, we're having to slow down because we feel so weighed down because of things that have been forgiven and yet we're still holding on to like they're still in a bag. 